You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to see uh, all of your shining, smiley faces. And uh, as we just heard a story about Pastor Todd, uh, if you don't know this, this month we have been just celebrating and remembering uh, 50 years. 50 years ago this month, our church started. And uh, I am so grateful to have had uh, individuals like Pastor Hart, Pastor Sellers, and Pastor Todd Nevue, like that Chris mentioned there, uh, lead this church over these 50 years. And that here we are, 50 years later. You know, if you look at statistics, most churches don't make it in the, through the first two years. And uh, just like businesses, uh, startups uh, don't make it oftentimes. And uh, 50 years, five decades, what a remarkable journey. And God has so many exciting things ahead for us. And uh, I'll just mention many of you are joining us this Saturday for our 50th anniversary banquet. If you haven't, today is the absolute last day to register for that. So make sure you do that. And we'd love to see you as we just remember and celebrate uh, Saturday uh, over at Stratigo's Banquet Hall. Uh, how many of you love visiting different baseball parks? Any of you, any of you on that list? There's a few of you. Thank you, guys. Uh, visiting different baseball parks. We are blessed in Pittsburgh to have one of the best baseball parks. I didn't say teams, but best baseball parks in Major League Baseball. We have one of the best baseball teams in the AAA uh, farm system, but... Um, we have one of the best ballparks, but there are ballparks all over the country uh, that are historical, and I still remember the day. Uh, it was Thursday, the, September the 3rd, 2009. Uh, I was on vacation. I was single and uh, had gone to Chicago to visit some friends and family there, and uh, while I was there, uh, discovered that there was a makeup day game scheduled, baseball game, uh, for the Chicago uh, for the Chicago Cubs, which, if you don't know this, the Chicago Cubs play at Wrigley Field, historic stadium, historic park. And this makeup day game just so happened to be a makeup game against their crosstown rival, the Chicago White Sox. Couldn't miss the opportunity. So me and a couple of friends, we get tickets to this game. Oh my goodness. People are screaming at each other. They don't like each other. It's the White Sox, the Cubs. Like, it was awesome. But I remember sitting there at Wrigley Field, and I, we were just... Uh, taking it all in, a hundred years almost of baseball at that point, and very little had changed. The, the, really, the only big changes were some of the amenities, like lights. They added lights. Um, but, but Wrigley Field still looks the same. Uh, look at that. It's amazing. Um, Wrigley Field still looks the same. Like, it is an incredible ballpark. And, and I, I, I loved getting to kind of take this pilgrimage of sorts to go visit uh, this place where so much good has happened uh, for the Cubs years ago. They won their last World Series at, at, at Wrigley Field in 1916. It's been a little while. Maybe someday they'll win another one. Um, but it was amazing. And, and just sitting in those seats and, and taking in all the accomplishment, all the history, all that has transpired in society. And for over 100 years now, people were coming to that ballpark to enjoy America's pastime. Now what makes... Uh, historic buildings like this so special are they remind us how far we've come but they also remind us of what what once was they allow us to reflect back on some of the best of times now on the other hand one of the places I have yet to visit and when my kids are old enough I'm hoping to visit with them is the Holocaust Museum in Washington DC 
You know, very different uh, of a historic place than Wrigley Field. This is a place of significance for our world because it reminds us of the atrocities of the past and it challenges us to change the practices of our future. You know, buildings and museums like the Holocaust Museum are so special because uh, they embody a message from our past that becomes crucial for our society moving forward. It's almost like the dead speak to us from their graves through museums like this, challenging us to not make the mistakes of society's past. And, And churches, churches can have a lot in common with museums and other historic buildings that embody our past like these two structures do. They, they often tell stories uh, that are tied to them of significant accomplishment from the past or the redemption of significant mistakes. Churches can provide us with lessons that we can learn from, from uh, and use to better ourselves. Similar to many museums today, churches often have awe-inspiring architecture that we can sit back and behold as we walk through them and sit in them. Now, if you've ever visited a museum, you've probably had a similar uh, experience when you enter. And as you walk into a museum, there's usually two ways, uh, two things you have to have to, to get in. Uh, you have to pay an admission fee or be a member of that, of that specific museum. Our family, for, for a number of years, we have four kids, so we have passes to a lot of different museums in Pittsburgh, and those passes allow us to go, you know, whenever we want to. Uh, we don't have to pay an admission fee each time. Uh, and, and for some, some of the museums, we can even uh, go visit other museums that are similar nature in other cities. It provides us with special perks like discounts and insider info about events that are coming up at them. And sometimes we can even uh, come to those museums and visit when outsiders aren't allowed, others aren't allowed. Uh, there are definitely perks to being uh, a museum membership. My goal wasn't to be a commercial for museum membership, but there are perks to it. Uh, this parallel, though, has uh, often also been true for churches. Like, like when you drive by a church, if you aren't a church-going person, uh, it's easy, and a lot of people would think this, that that place is only for the insiders, for, for the members. Like that's a members-only kind of club. Well, have you ever thought that about church before? Or, or have you ever had the thought that, that what makes church so special is its past, its history? Like maybe you're at church today and uh, you're here because you have a lot of history in church, meaning you grew up in church. You're, you're one of those quote-unquote insiders. Or, or maybe it's because someone close to you told you about church or invited you to church. For, for so many, church can be a big part of their historical view of their own lives. We talked about earlier, of their own story. It's almost like a museum that they love to reflect back on and have fond memories of. You know, we were singing that song earlier, You've Been So Faithful. As we were just singing that song, I was just thinking back. So, so fortunate. So many moments in my life. Growing up as a pastor's kid in La Trobe. So many moments when things were difficult and God was faithful. Maybe that's you. You, you reflect back on so many of those fond memories of church. But what I want to talk to you about today is this question and kind of the tension that that question presents. And it's this. Is the church to be a museum of what was or should it be an expression of what is yet to come? Like, which one is it? Is it to be a a, a memory place where we can reflect back on what was and celebrate that and and reminisce about that and and, and similar to a museum, like kind of uh, uh, raise that up as as the ideal? Or is it 
to be a place where we express and celebrate what is yet to come. Maybe that's more philosophical than you're ready to really process this early in the morning. But, but, uh, but think about it for a second. Are our gatherings as a church more like a museum where we reflect back on the past, where we take lessons from the past to help us today, and where museum membership or admission is required for entry? You might be like, that's, that's, that, that's a little crazy. That's like the craziest thing I've ever heard. No church is asking for admission coming in or you know, looking for membership cards. But, but, but can I tell you, it's actually very true. This describes a lot of churches in our world and at times can even describe our church. Now, to un- unpack this idea, this kind of concept, I want to look at two different passages uh, in the Bible. One is in the first part of the Bible we refer to as the Old Testament. The second one is from the second part of the Bible we call the New Testament. Uh, both deal with something that was built with the goal to remember. And, and when, when things are built to remember, it's usually either to remember something really amazing that happened. Remember we talked about this, like Wrigley Field. Or, or, or it's uh, to, to, to remember something horrific, like the Holocaust Museum. Now, the first story we want to look at is from Scripture. Uh, is about a time when something was built to, to remember something that was seemingly uh, impossible, that was accomplished. And, and it was something that generations after generation after generation had waited for and longed for. Uh, I'll give you a little background. It was around 1300, 1400 B.C. Uh, the nation of Israel had been on arguably one of the longest road trips in human history. Now, I have, uh, as I mentioned, four kids. We uh, like to, uh, to go on road trips, but we can't travel more than three or four hours. Otherwise, like, our ears start to hurt from screaming and, you know, kids get restless and all that stuff. Uh, this road trip would last over 40 years. <laughs> like, for a road trip to last that long, someone along the way had to have questioned the directions. Like, Moses, dude, like, I know you said right, we should have gone left, but like we can go back and still probably make it. Uh, they didn't have Garmin, they didn't have MapQuest, they didn't have Google Maps, they clearly did not have Waze. Like, they, were, they, were, they were wondering. 40 years. Uh, this road trip, though, wasn't uh, toward a, a vacation spot like a lot of our trips might be, but actually it was toward a plot of land that had been promised to their ancestors. You see, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And, and for those 400 years, generation after generation, every grandparent would tell their grandkids the same story. It was a story of the day that God promised their people this land. It was called the land of Canaan. It was a, a, a plot of land that, that, that God said, this will be the place that you inhabit. This will be your land. This will be yours. I promise it to you. I commit it to you. And, and every generation would share that hope, and, and that generation would die. And the next generation would grow and become the grandparents. And they would share with their grandkids. And they would die. For 400 years, this cycle went through. It was a promise that God had given to their founding father, Abraham. And that one day, his descendants would live in that land. God had literally promised this plot. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they lived in anticipation. That one day, they're actually going to like experience it. They're actually going to live it out. Then came a really special generation of people. Some have referred to this generation as Joshua's generation. It was called that because they were being led by a a young, unproven leader named Joshua. He followed Moses, who is seasoned, who is respected, who still to this day is one of the great leaders in all of Scripture. This would be a generation that would take the very first steps onto the land that God had promised hundreds of years earlier. And it all unfolded in really one of the most remarkable ways possible. Israel, now numbering into the millions, 
would, would come to the edge and the bank of the Jordan River. And across the Jordan River was the land of Canaan that God had promised. And they could see it. Like, they could see the land across the Jordan. The problem was, the Jordan River at that time was at flood stage. Like, the obstacles, the circumstances were not, you know, uh, inclined to, to crossing. It wasn't going to be easy. How do you get millions of people on the other side of a river? Uh, not going to be easy. Uh, and this is, the, this is a case where, like, Oregon Trail would not work. You cannot forge the river. Um, millions of people cannot forge the river at, at flood stage. It would have been a disaster. Uh, but but that, this is what they were going to do. And, and Joshua, following the leading of God, would do something impossible. And he, God prompted him, and, and, and he had the priests get this big box that was called the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a, a box that really embodied the presence of God. And, and God told them to walk into the river. Like crazy. Uh, it was like a, a death wish. And, and the priests get the, the Ark of the Covenant on these posts, these poles, and, and they started to step. And as they stepped off of the dry land on the shore, first step into the Jordan River the waters started to part. Now, uh, maybe you've heard the story of like Moses and the Red Sea and Moses part of the Red Sea. You know, they had heard that story as well, but they hadn't lived it. They, they'd heard the story and, and most of them hadn't experienced it themselves. I mean, this was 40 years ago. Um, many of them had heard the story and now all of a sudden they're seeing something very similar take place. The, the Jordan River at flood stage starts to back up, cut off, and, and the land in front of them starts to dry up. And the Ark of the Covenant, the priests, they would walk to the middle of the river now, which was dry ground, and they stood there. And as long as they stood there, the river stayed back. And millions of people then crossed to the other side. And as they got to the other side, uh, God prompted Joshua, like, Joshua, you got to do something. So in Joshua chapter 4, verse 4, Joshua had a plan to, to remember this moment. In verse 4, he says, it says, so Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the the Israelites, one from each tribe. There were 12 tribes in Israel. And he said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. So the Jordan's like dried up right now. The water's kind of backed up. Uh, he says, go to the middle where the, the ark of the covenant is. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So what was taking place is uh, Joshua told these men, representing each of the 12 tribes, to go into the middle of the Jordan River, which they would never be able to do normally, grab these rocks out of the middle, and build uh, essentially a memorial, an altar, so that every generation following, when they crossed by that spot, on the banks of the Jordan River, they could see that memorial, that monument, and they could tell the story to each generation. Do you know why that stands there? It stands there because God was faithful, because God did something miraculous. And they built this, and it was such a remarkable reminder. You know, this, this stone comes from my, my grandparents' house. My grandfather built his house right here in Hontown, Irwin, uh, a long time ago. And uh, he was a person that just was able to put anything together. I loved what my grandfather would do. And, and rocks like this remember my past, my history, like how I came here, how my great-grandmother moved to Irwin in 1900, and, and my grandfather raised three girls, my mom being one of them, and now I get to raise my kids here. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a remem remembrance and, and a memory of what God has done. That's what, what God was doing through Joshua. And, and they would, every year, 
people would drive, walk by and they would see that rock and those, that, that monument and they would remember of what God, uh, God had done. These are such important reminders to have in our lives. Fixed points that we can look back and see, man, God was faithful. Maybe there are places in your life where God has been faithful. I would encourage you to create some space and time to visit those places. Not to, not to make them, you know, greater than what they are, but to pause and remember that God has been faithful. Now, when I, when I look at this building that we sit in, I think of the hundreds of people that gave of their time, money, and talent to build all of the buildings across the campus here today that we enjoy, see ministry taking place through 50 years later. In a very similar way to what Joshua built along the Jordan, our church buildings stand as a memorial of what generations before us accomplished and how God showed up in miraculous fashion, how God moved in supernatural ways. Here's the challenge, though. With monuments, with memorials, with museums, if we're not careful, they can cause us to believe that progress lies with the dead. But in the second part of the Bible, we call the New Testament, there's a few verses that actually show that progress does not rest in the past, but rather in the hands of the living. These verses are uh, in what, we origin- what was originally a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. This letter was penned at a time when early Christians were, were beginning to face some of the fiercest persecution they had ever experienced. There was a pressure at this time, to give, give in to the persecution. Uh, there, there was a, a tendency to reflect back on, on the way things used to be and, and, and what if we can go back to like more peaceful times. Does that sound familiar? I don't know if it sounds familiar, but it sounds fairly familiar to me. And, and into that setting, Peter writes about a monument, a building of sorts that was being built. It was not a representation of the dead or of the past, but it was a living monument. Here's what he writes in 1 Peter it's recorded in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He says this, As you come to him, the living stone, and you see stone is capitalized, it's speaking of Jesus. It's kind of an uh, archetype of Jesus, what he's talking about. So, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Listen to this, verse 5. You also, can you say you also? You also, he's speaking to you, Okay. He's speaking to you. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter here is really hearkening back to to moments uh, like what we just read in, in the book of Joshua where God's people built monuments, built memorials to remember what, what had happened. But this takes an entirely different direction. The goal of this living monument that Peter writes about isn't to cause us to look back at what God has done, but to look forward at what he's going to do. The big fancy word that Peter's kind of illustrating here is this word called incarnation. We don't use the word incarnation very often. um, But incarnation refers to our calling as followers of Jesus to continue the work that Jesus had started. As one author writes, that we are literally to be Jesus with skin on. Peter explains uh, something that one of the other apostles, the gospel writer John, uh, wrote about in the first chapter of the gospel of John. Here's what he wrote in John chapter 1, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, he said, The word, and it's capitalized again, just like stone was. This is speaking of Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling 
among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word became flesh is talking about the incarnation of Jesus when God took on flesh. This is where God, for the very first time, took on flesh and lived among us. That the God of the universe, the one that spoke everything into existence, would take on human form in Jesus. You see, Jesus was fully God in every single way. But equally, he was fully human. He felt pain. He felt sorrow. He felt disappointment, just like any of us do. Now, to come back to this parallel with museums, Peter writes about a a monument, so to speak, that is being built. But it's not meant to be an exclusive members-only monument or or museum. It's It's not a museum that is focused on looking back. It's not even supposed to celebrate what's been accomplished. This living stone, this incarnation, it is, is an example of what Jesus is doing. He came from heaven to earth to destroy the boundaries between God and man, to make God accessible, relevant, and real. We unfortunately live in a time in history where the church is trying to work through so much. After so much has changed in the recent years, the American church is trying very hard to preserve our past. We are working through a polarized world where it's normal to position groups of people in an us versus them mentality. The the exclusivity of church, the tendency to try to move back to what was, has never been greater. We just want to get back to the way it once was. If we could just get a glimpse of what once was, it'll make it feel better. But into that cultural context, listen to what Peter wrote. He said, you also, like living Stones. Can you say living stones? Now, something interesting about living stones, I think, is important. Something that's living doesn't stay the same, right? Um, I can go back and look at. I, I don't have them. God, thank God for that. But um, I don't have them here. But you can go back and look at my baby pictures, or when I was three years old, or when I was six years old, or when I was eight years old, or when I was twelve years old. You can go back and look at those pictures. And here's the deal: I don't look the same. I know that sounds crazy. It scared me. I thought they had a picture. (laughs) Whew, that was a close one. Changed the screen, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh. You can go back, and I don't look the same. And I would venture to guess, if we pulled out some of your baby pictures, you don't look the same either. Some of you might not even look the same like 10 years ago. 15 years ago, 30 years ago. Like, we change. Why? Because we're living, right? Living things should change. They don't stay the same. Peter writes that you, me, we are living stones. And we're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Understand, this language is so huge because for a Jew in the first century, there was a very select few who could ever take part in a priesthood. You had to be part of the tribe of Levi. You had to have like all of your T's crossed and your I's dotted, like you had to have everything on point if you were gonna be part of the priesthood. And he's saying, all of you are living stones, you're changing, and you have the opportunity to be part of this holy priesthood. He goes on, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
This is such a countercultural statement. He is saying that the church isn't some exclusive club for members only that we just invite people to. Like what you're sitting in today, what you're watching online, this isn't a place that you just invite people to. I know that sounds crazy. Like, shouldn't we invite people to church? Yeah, invite people to church. But that's not what it's meant to be. The church is never meant to be a place you just invite people to. It's not a museum built to remember what once happened, what was in our past. The church is a living, breathing organism that isn't to be a representation or represented by a physical building or structure at all. In fact, in the early church, the word church, which was ecclesia, that Greek word doesn't even mean building. It means a gathering of called ones. Literally, anytime they gathered as Christians or followers, that was the ecclesia, that was the church. So they might gather in a marketplace, that was the ecclesia, that was the church. They might gather in someone's home, that was the ecclesia, that was the church. And we've processed this over the last two, three years, and it's been tough, because we were going through a pandemic, and we talked about, man, the church isn't a building, the church isn't a building, and now the church is a building again. But the church is never meant to simply be a building. If it ever becomes some, nothing more than a building, we've missed our way, we've lost our way, we've forgotten we're not a museum of the past. The, the, the church You are living stones. You are a living, breathing organism. You are the church. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, he echoes what what Peter's writing. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Once again, uh, Paul had been uh, a Pharisee. He had been a religious leader, Jewish uh, religious leader. Like he had trained under the best of the best. He knew all the Jewish customs. He had lived uh, perfectly according to the Jewish law. And he's saying, you are the temple. That's almost sacrilegious for, for a Jewish person at that time. Like the temple was a sacred place. You never spoke uh, poorly of the temple. And, and he's saying, you as a human being, as a living, breathing human being, you are now the temple. Like, this was upside down for many people. And he said, who is, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Like, the Holy Spirit's in you. He doesn't just dwell in a building. You know, when the, when the Israelites walked across the Jordan River, they had the Ark of the Covenant, this physical structure, and God's presence was housed in that physical structure. When Jesus came to the earth and died, he, he broke the divide. It's not housed by a physical structure. It's housed in you. You, you see, when Jesus became God incarnate, meaning Jesus stepped from heaven and became a man, he began to, ex- to destroy the boundary, the, the, the exclusive, exclusive nature that God's people had adopted for, for them versus the others. It was an us versus them mentality. In fact, in the Old Testament, God's people worshipped in a temple, and even into the early part of the New Testament, they worshipped in a temple in Jerusalem. This temple had two primary courts. I think we have a picture here. So this is kind of a layout. We had two primary courts. You had inner court and outer court. That's like a really simplified version. Well, that, the outer court was just for the outsiders or what they call Gentiles. No Gentile could, could, could pass beyond the outer court. You weren't allowed. Wouldn't be allowed. Then you had the inner court. And the inner court was broken into three different categories. You, you had uh, the first category was the, the, the court of the priests. The court of the priests is where the altar was and sacrifices were offered. And in the court of the priests was the Holy of Holies, where the high priest, the highest priest of all, once a year would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people of God. That was the court of the priests. And another part of the inner, inner court was the court of Israel. The court of Israel was where all the men, Jewish men, could come and worship. Court of Israel. Then there's the court of women. And this is where the women... Jewish women were segregated off. They weren't allowed in the other two courts. 
and there where they could come and worship. And, and, and the nature of, of how that style of worship took place was everyone was kind of in their spot and you weren't allowed to cross beyond per- certain levels and certain spots. And this practice of excluding outsiders would continue until Jesus died upon the cross. In, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, it's recorded this moment. It says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, meaning he died. In verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain was a curtain that separated people, kept people out, excluded people, kept the temple as a members-only club that others weren't welcome to enter. And now, Peter writes, these living stones, these living stones aren't meant to be a place that we invite others to. It's to be the power of God that we carry to go to people. You see, here's, here's my dream for our church as the worship team comes this morning. What if, what if our church wasn't defined by what we do when we gather? What if, what if we were defined by how we change the world when we leave this place? What if it wasn't about how, how we worship as we come together? What, what, if, what if we could be the living monument that doesn't stand as a reminder of once what, hap, what, what, what once happened or, or of the moment that God showed up and miraculously changed things? What if we became the living expression of what God is doing? This isn't just a way of doing church. This isn't just some new fad or church tactic. This is what the church is meant to be from the beginning. Go all the way back to the book of Acts, chapter 2. This is what the church is meant to be. It's not about a building. It's not about our gathering. It's about our going. We aren't to be a monument of the past. And we have a rich heritage and past. We're so great, so grateful for that. But we aren't a memory of how not to do things. We're not to be a, 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 a fixed point of lessons that we need to learn from the past necessarily. We are to be a gathering of people who are empowered, equipped, and challenged to be the incarnation of Jesus in this world. To see the miracles, the transformation, the change that followed Jesus as he walked this earth. That same thing should follow us in our workplaces, in, our gro- in the grocery store, in, in our neighborhoods, in schools, wherever we go. The miraculous that God did through Jesus as he walked the earth should happen through us. This is our calling. This is our mission. This is our reason that we are a church at all. It's not to gather people so we can have more people. It's to go, empower, and challenge you to make a difference. You know, here at Calvary, we don't actually call our members members. You might not know this. We call them catalysts. You might be like, well, that's just a fancy term for a member. No, it's not. It's an intentional term. Why? Because we aren't a members-only club. We want to equip you to be a catalyst for change. That's the reason we always have done that. Not because we're just trying to be fancy. Because we want to equip you to change the world. This may sound odd now that we're celebrating our 50th anniversary next weekend. But this has been our battle cry since our first service in August of 1972. That, 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 that it would never be said of Calvary Church that we are a place where tradition takes priority over transformation, where our gatherings become more important than our going, that our message is louder in here than it is out there. We should never allow our obsession with the past to overshadow our passion for the future. The moment we do that, you can start the funeral. The church is over. As we step into a week 
where we're gonna be celebrating our 50th anniversary. I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate 50 years of God's miracles. 50 years of what God did yesterday by stepping out to be used by God to do the miraculous today. So this week, as we're preparing for our 50th, we have something we're calling our blessing week. Here's the heart in this. On our biggest week, our biggest day, we want to shine the spotlight off of us, reflect it on others. We want to make much of others. So we've been, we've been uh, uh, blessed to be able to do something this week as we give back to our community. And, and we want to invite you to be part of the blessing. This isn't just about us as a church. You get to be part of it because you're part of this church. We are the church, right? So tomorrow, tomorrow evening, we're going to be uh, going to uh, Aldi grocery store. We're buying people, paying for people's groceries. You don't have to pay for more have gift cards, so you can, you know, be part of that. Tuesday, we're partnering with Duncan Financial. We're even providing lunches for all the teachers and faculty of Norman School District at service day. We get to serve, serve our educators in our district here. Wednesday, Wednesday, we're going to be going to a local gas station and paying for gas for people. A time where gas is really difficult, we just want to let people know, hey, even in the little things, the practical things, like God loves you. Thursday, we're going to go to a local coffee shop, White Tree Cafe, and purchase people's coffee and just serve that, that place, that, the, the employees there, and, and just be there to serve. And then at lunchtime, we're going to be walking through Colono Grill in good Irwin fashion and paying for people's lunch. You might be like, well, what's that big deal of that? Because we have been so blessed. God has called us to be a blessing. And you can be part of that. If you go to connect.calvaryirwin.com, click events, you can sign up to serve at one of those. Serving isn't like you have to provide the money or any of that. We have gift cards. We're all ready to go. You just get to be part of the blessing. Now, I, let me just preface this. Please don't show up at those places looking for something free. It's not for you, okay? We want to be a blessing. And, and, and maybe you're like, man, I can't, I can't make any of those. That, that's fine. You know, beyond this blessing week, I want to challenge you to not view coming to church as your mission each weekend, your goal each weekend. I'm not saying you shouldn't come. We love gathering. I think there's something powerful about us gathering. But that's not the goal. Make it a routine every morning to pray this prayer. God, use me today to be your hands and feet. Allow me to be an avenue of the miraculous. God, use me to be your hands and feet. Allow me to be an avenue of the miraculous. You don't have to have pastor in front of your name to do that. You just have to be willing, obedient, that can happen in a cubicle at work. It can happen in front of your locker at school. That can happen in the dairy aisle at the grocery store. God wants to use you. And God has placed you where you live right now. We all live in different places. Where you live, like your home address, where you grocery shop, where, where you get gas, where, where, you, where you hang out with your kids, the parks you go to and the playground. Like God has put you where he has for a reason. It's not an accident. He put you there. Why? Because he's sent you. You might be like, I wasn't sent. No, you have been sent. You are the church. You are living stones. It's time we stop believing the idea that the church is a building. It's not. The church is you. It's me. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we get to carry it. Before we go this morning, I just want to pray. I want to pray for two things. Maybe you're here, you're watching online, and, and the idea that God could ever love you 
that this God who is far off and distant could ever care for you is foreign to you. And first and foremost, I want you to know that God came to earth as Jesus and died on the cross and rose again three days later. Why? Because he loves you that much. He, he removed the barriers, the obstacles. The, there might be religious walls you put up that you're like, I can't ever be accepted or loved by God because of this, 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 and this. Jesus destroyed all of that. He loves you just as you are. I wanna, I wanna pray and give you an opportunity to, say, to, to receive that, to accept that. Number two, we're gonna pray in a moment that the Holy Spirit would empower you to not just come to church every week so that you magically wake up at the right time and you magically have everything set out so that you can get to church so it's as easy as possible. Nope, that's not my prayer. My prayer is the Holy Spirit would empower you to be the church tomorrow morning and the day after that and the day after that, that every day you are a living stone, a living monument, memorial of what God is doing in our world. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? God, I thank you so much for all that you're doing. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being used by you for your calling you've put on our lives. Thank you, thank you, God, that 2,000 years ago, you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to step out of heaven and to step onto, to, into earth. God, to, to, to cross the divide that we couldn't cross because you love us and you forgive us and you see us where we are and you love us where we are. As you're continuing to pray this morning, if you're here or you're watching online, you've never taken a step to say, you know what, I wanna, I wanna accept God's forgiveness of my past. I wanna accept what he has he's done for me, uh, that he could actually forgive my past and my mistakes and all that I've done with the Bible called sin, like he could forgive that stuff and he could welcome me as a child of God. I need to accept that. I need to, to come to grips with that truth and live my life in the reality of that truth. And if that's you this morning, I'm just gonna count the three and ask you to reach your hand toward heaven. It's not anything fancy. It's a physical act of real to say, God, today I choose you. You chose me, but today I choose you. I wanna follow you. I wanna live for your purposes. I wanna ex- accept your forgiveness. You know, forgiveness is nothing until you accept it. I want to accept your forgiveness. Live in your grace. That's you this morning. Whether you're watching online or here in person, on account of three, I want you to reach your hand toward heaven. One, two, three. That's you today. Amen. Amen. Anyone else today? Amen. Anyone else today? Amen. You can put your hands down. Now I'm asking everyone to pray this prayer with me. Whether you raise your hand or not, we're, we're the family of God. We, we do this together. And as I, as I lead you in this prayer, as you pray this prayer with me, just repeat after me, this isn't like a magic prayer, it's just a conversation with God that I wanna lead you in. And my hope is, you know, that this is the first of many conversations you have with him. That's all prayer is, just a conversation you have with God. As you share what's on your heart, your good, the bad, the ugly, you just talk to God. Would you all bow your heads and keep your eyes closed and pray this prayer with me together this morning. Dear God, thank you for loving me just as I am that I don't have to earn it, that I don't deserve it, and yet you still love me. Today I accept your forgiveness. I commit to live for your purposes. Give me the strength and the courage to follow you all the days of my life and to show your love to the world around me. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. 
You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.